You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our reading this morning will be Psalm uh, 133. A Song of Ascents of David. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so let's begin here. It's okay. Uh, Let's begin here. There's an old African proverb that goes like this. If you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go what? Together. If you want to go fast, by all means, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And, and, and I'm here to tell you that the Christian journey is not about speed. It's about perseverance. It's not about how fast you got to the first mile marker. It's about the, the, the big question, did you make it to the end? And as I've mentioned multiple times in the past, some, some, some people are going to sprint through the finish line, other people are going to sort of do a brisk jog through the finish line, and then the rest of us are going to just barely crawl through the finish line. But the point is that God's people will persevere to the end. It's the doctrine of grace, perseverance of the saints. The Pilgrims of Faith that historically sang the songs of ascent, these songs, uh, along the long, treacherous journey to Jerusalem, understood this, this sort of key theme here, that the quality of the journey is tied to the quality of our relationships. And I think it's really interesting that this song, a uh, song about unity between believers, is near the very end of the Pilgrim's playlist. For the very end. So the myth, the myth is that the more that you grow in your faith, the more that you make progress on the spiritual journey, well then, the less that you will need the help of others. The more you mature, the less you need, the less you depend on others. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard individuals say, you know, like, uh, it's just me and Jesus now. I'm a mature Christian. I needed the church and these sort of resources when I was just becoming a Christian, and I, I get that. But now uh, I'm a mature Christian. I, I don't really need the church. I've got all I need now. But you see, a song of unity at the very end of the symbolic journey illustrates the very opposite. We never move beyond our need for fellowship. We never move beyond our need for accountability. We never move beyond our need for community. We, we simply journey further into it. That's where this thing is headed, into meaningful relationships. And if you're not going deep within Christian community, then you're likely not going far on your spiritual journey. They're one and the same. Growth in godliness is always going to involve growth in relationships. And this is what we we learned in our study of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Like these big questions, like how do we know that we're making progress in our faith? How do we know that the powerful work of God through the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead, for goodness sake, how do we know that same power is being unleashed in our lives? Guys, we complicate this. It is very simple. This is how we know. Just look at the way that you interact with people. 
Just look at your relationships. And, and, and the fruit of the Spirit makes it very simple. Not easy, but simple. Are you a loving person? Is your life marked by you know, this generally joyful demeanor? Are you patient with people's shortcomings? Are you kind? Uh, are you, do you display commitment and, and fidelity and faithfulness in your relationships? And so on. So today, we're, we're going to lean into this idea that I mentioned earlier. This is sort of the big idea, that the quality of our journey is determined by the quality of our relationships. And I want to kind of explore that, that theme today. And specifically, I want to talk about the relationships that we experience within the believing community, that is the church. And there's three things I want us to look at um, as we look at unity today. The first of which is this, the design. The design. Now, I'll never forget being at a conference uh, with thousands of people in this big venue, and one of the speakers named Andy Crouch took the stage, and he began to, be, he began to talk about being known. Now, he's a pretty well-known Christian author in the whole Christian author world. He was one of the main speakers at this conference, and he made this point that really uh, stuck with me. He said, you know, I'm standing here in a room of thousands of people, and that, you know, thousands of people that know me but don't actually know me. Most of you, he said, know me by name. Perhaps you've even read my books. But out of all the thousands of people that are here in this hall, there is probably one, maybe two of you that knew my parents' names. And he named his parents' names. And I confessed, I knew this person. I'd read his books. I had no idea his parents' names. And what he was talking about was this subtle yet really just profound difference between being known and being known. So subtle we can miss it though, right? The difference between being known and being known. We were created to be known. And we long for that experience. And the desire to be known doesn't necessarily make you egotistical or narcissistic or a needy individual. The need and longing desire to be known makes you human. It's a very human thing. Where it goes wrong, where it becomes narcissistic and egotistical and very needy is when we begin to explore and really search for that being known in the wrong ways and in the wrong places. See, in the age of social media and entertainment and influencers, many of us have come to believe that our desire to be known will be satisfied in popularity or it will be satisfied in fame or status or based on a certain number of followers or based on a certain amount of online friends or likes or reposts or fill in the blank. When in reality, it is meaningful, tight-knit relationships that we really long for most. And I, I think a really good argument could be made from Jesus's relationship with his 12 disciples and a few other really good close friends that you know, we were designed for quality over quantity when it comes to our relationships. We weren't necessarily created for the masses and to be known by many, but by few. By few. I think Justin Bieber just released a song recently about the struggle of being known by many, but being known by few. 
psalmist has no framework for hundreds or thousands of online shallow friendships. This is not what the psalmist is talking about. No offense to you streaming online. We love you. But the psalmist has nothing like this in mind. What the believing community is celebrating here, literally singing for joy about, is when God's people dwell together in unity. That's what causes them to spontaneously sing here. And the words unity and dwell, both of them carry this sort of meaning of long-term commitment and physical proximity. These aren't many shallow online relationships. These are long-term relationships marked by intimacy and nearness. This is what the psalmist is talking about here. Now, of all the ways that, well, God created the world and he stepped back and after sort of every movement of creation, he declared that it was good. It is good, it is good, it is good. And yet, of all the things that God declared good in his creation, there's actually one thing that he looked at that he created and he says, this is not good. And it was man by himself. And so what did he do? He created community so that humanity could do two things. Accurately reflect the triune community nature of God and also so that humanity could thrive within the support of quality relationships. And what this means is that you and I are most alive. You and I are most human. You and I are most aligned with God's you know, this God-given design with our, on our lives within healthy, trusting, unified, long-term relationships. When you and I are, are experiencing relationship like Adam and Eve experienced before the fall, as it's described, they were naked and unashamed. They were naked and unashamed. And I think that this phrase, naked and unashamed, has so little to do with romance and sexuality and has so much to do with vulnerability. When you are naked, it is all out there for the person to see. The the idea of nakedness isn't just naked bodies, but naked souls. You know me. I know you. There's nothing covered. There's nothing hidden. There's nothing secret. You're known and yet loved. The picture of God-given, God-ordained relationship is vulnerable and yet secure. And it's marked by difference. Obviously, Adam and Eve, it's marked by anatomical difference that would be visible when they were naked. But, but as we apply this to our own lives, our relationships are marked by difference as well. Political differences. Differences of opinions when it comes to, wear, uh, to wearing masks or where to put your children in school. Differences, socioeconomic differences, cultural and ethnic differences and fill in the blank. And yet, unified, naked and unashamed, known and loved, diverse and one. This, right here. Look around. Do me a favor. Just look around. This. With all of its masks and temperature checks and weird gaps between us, this right here is God's design. And this is not an afterthought. This is not an unfortunate consequence of being a Christian. It's like, oh, I'm a Christian, so this is what I have to do. Unity is part of our design for flourishing. 
Perhaps some of us showed up today thinking that, that we are here to do something for God. God told me, so I need to do this for God. We are not here to do primarily to do something for God. We are here primarily for God to do something in us. God is at work within us. And in a world that has been divided and torn because of sin, and just look at the news right now. We live in a nation that is literally hemorrhaging because of political division. People are divided. Hate is brewing right now in the midst of this world in the midst of what is going on in our communities christian community remains at the very center of god's plan for our renewal this right now you are whether you recognize it or not right in the middle of the action of god's initiative to heal and mend a fractured world i wonder if we showed up today thinking that right in the center of the action. I'm right in the middle of God's initiative to bring healing to a broken world. Whether you know it or not, that's what you're in on right now. We gather. And so we see the design. You guys still with me? Okay. Well, remind me once in a while. <laughs> Secondly, let's look at the delight. Look with me in verse 1. The delight. Behold. How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Now, Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, wrote a book called Life Together. It's been called like the, the greatest Christian book on Christian community written in the 20th century. And this little book, Life Together, that we continue to read, it's probably in the, back, it's the stack of books back there right now. Uh, one of the most profound Christian books written in the 20th century is framed around this one verse that I just read. Good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. And in this book, he says this, it is grace, nothing but grace, that we are allowed to live in community with Christian brothers and sisters. It is grace and always grace. And so when the pilgrims of faith reflect on God's people, these diverse 12 tribes coming together, all gathered together in one place, it says that they experience delight. They can't wait to be with God's people. To them, this is good. To them, this is pleasant. This is desirable. In fact, the word here for pleasant can actually be translated pleasurable. And it shows up in another book of the Bible called Song of Solomon. You catch my drift? Like, it is, it's an intimacy that brings delight. Now, let me ask you a question this morning. And honestly assess and honestly think about the answer to this, but maybe don't blurt out your answer. Does this describe your experience of community? Delight. Goodness. Pleasure. As we look at this psalm, as we look at this believing community, it's pretty clear that they do not need convincing. They're not being guilted into gathering. They don't require a constant feed of emails to remind them. Uh, they don't need someone to text them to wake them up in the morning. They don't, uh, you know, they're not sort of fitting it into their already busy schedules. I don't see any evidence of anyone being dragged here. The believing community is right at the center of their present priorities and right at the heart of their future dreams for their lives. They cannot imagine life without the community. Now, if I were to be honest, 
I think that we have set the bar so low when it comes to our participation in the life of the church and our participation in the community. Whereas these men and women, year after year, risked both their lives on this treacherous journey and also their livelihood, leaving their home to come to this place, there, the delight was so rewarding that nothing was getting in their way from gathering. And yet here we are, the evangelical church, week after week, scrambling to come up with creative ideas to entertain people so they keep coming back and maybe give their money. It's such a stark difference when I read the posture of this believing community and then just all the like tricks and gimmicks that we think that we have to do to keep people coming back. No one is needing to be convinced. The reward is in the belonging. And honestly, if, I, if I'm honest with you, I'm reading this psalm, it makes me want to rethink everything I do within church ministry. Of spending no more time trying to convince people and trying to entertain people and trying to be clever and creative and just faithfully stick to the word believing that God is going to draw his people. The people that are supposed to be there, guess what? They're going to be there. And people don't need to be babysat. And people don't need to be their arms turned. God stirs the heart. Now, if we're not stirred, we don't require another phone call. We don't require another person reaching out to us. We require repentance and asking God to stir our hearts. Now, I really want to be honest about this, this whole idea here, and paint an honest picture because I highly doubt, I highly doubt, I'm speculating, but I highly doubt that everyone who ever sang this song was always only filled with delight when it came to gathering with God's people. And there were probably those, just like us, that grumbled and thought to themselves, really, we got to do this over again? It just seems like we are just there. Now we got to go back again. What's the point of all this? I'm just not feeling it. Because they're human, they probably experience similar things that we experience, like unresolved conflict. Like, gosh, when we show up to Jerusalem, so-and-so is going to be there. Oh, my gosh. And we've got this unresolved conflict. Or, you know, if they're in the middle of a political season, like, oh, my gosh, I, they, like, highlighted how they're voting. Now i got to see them when they show up as well. They had every reason to not gather as well, and yet they do. And they continue to sing the song and make the trip in faith, believing that oftentimes the delight follows after the obedience. See, we're convinced today that until I feel it, then I'll wait to do it. We, we think that the delight comes first and then the responsibility, but the mature believer recognizes that sometimes you got to step into the responsibility, believing the delight will come eventually. It will come. I just got to step in. See, when a married couple is in a hard or a conflicted season, and, and I have to imagine that there are people in that season right now. When a, when a couple is in a hard and conflicted season, a very helpful practice is to begin to look back and, and revisit pictures from like a wedding album or earlier on in the relationship and, and to be reminded of the joy that they had and the love they experienced. I was just at a wedding yesterday and I watched the way that this couple looked into each other's eyes and it was, it was remarkable, but I'm thinking to myself, okay, give it like a week. 
That, that smile is going to turn into a frown. Because that's life. And, and the honeymoon will be over. And real life will happen. And yet there's this need to go back and to behold the delight of the relationship. And if I can make this application here, Psalm 133 is very similar. In fact, it begins with that. Behold, look, recognize, revisit this, revisit the wedding album. Remember how how good and pleasant it is when God's people dwell together in unity. And so this is what I'm calling you to as a church. I'm calling you to do the same, to behold to actually take literally this word, look, revisit this, especially in a season where, where it's really easy to get irritated with one another. It's really easy to, to, to get hurt feelings within the community. It's really easy to get annoyed with other individuals. It's really easy to see how someone interacts online and just peg them and just not want to have anything to do with them anymore. It's really easy in this season to really like, push people away, or to cause yourself to drift. And as was mentioned earlier, we are going into a potentially long season of gathering restrictions again. I legitimately don't know, but there's a potential that this is our last time this year where we are meeting in this place. And there's a real good chance that we'll be going back into our homes. Never has it been more important that we actually listen to what the Bible is saying here. Behold, look at this, constantly revisit. Revisit how good and pleasant it is when God's people dwell together. Amen? Let's look finally at the direction. The direction. Now, I want you to notice the way that unity is described in this psalm, especially the direction. Look with me again in verse 2. It's like the precious oil Uh, on the head, running down on the beard, on on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It's like the dew uh, of of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. So I'm I'm purposely leaning into this and and causing some emphasis here. But I'm going to keep pressing into this point that the way up is down because I believe that the psalmist keeps pressing this point. Remember, we're in the Psalms of Ascent and the psalmist is doing something very strange here. He's talking about descending, descending, descending. In fact, three times unity is described as descending. And so we're supposed to pay attention to this. And so let, let's, let's apply this in a few different ways. The first way is this, that true unity comes from above. If Unity descends, then the laws of physics here, unity comes from above. And what that means is that God's people don't create unity. No one creates unity. God's people don't build unity. We don't make it happen. We simply receive it. And we receive it by faith. And as much as we long to be one, as much as we desire to see peace in our lives and in our nation, We are just simply incapable of making unity. Look at our nation right now. Just watch the news. This is living proof that people left up to themselves are not united, no matter what they call themselves. Humans cannot, long-term, create and sustain unity. But unity is possible. And the psalmist is telling us how unity is possible Unity is possible when it runs down from above, when it comes to us from God. 
And so when the Christian reads these words that the precious oil was running down the beard of Aaron, I think what it should do for us as, as Christians is invoke an image in our imagination, a picture of how unity really does come down from heaven to us. Is it this, this ethereal thing that just comes out of the sky? How does unity actually come down to us? Well, it is not through the fallible priests of Israel like Aaron who betrayed Moses. Unity comes down more specifically through our faithful high priest, Jesus, who traded the precious oil of gladness running down his beard for the precious blood of suffering running down his beard, who through being torn in two and divided from God and divided from the land of the living made us one. This was the sacrifice. Jesus was divided so that we could be united. And through faith in, in Jesus and, and through the gospel, God is at work building a, a family and overcoming all of the barriers and overcoming all of the separations that diminish life. What we are experiencing right now, whether we recognize it or not, is God at work overcoming the barriers and overcoming the separations. And while it is important for us to be involved in society and involved in politics and involved in these different things, right now, our involvement in the kingdom of God is, again, right at the center of the action of God healing us as a people. Right at the center. Through faith in Jesus, we are reunited with God and his people. And so what this means is what makes community precious is not ultimately our experience of community. Can, can we be honest for a second? Our experience of community isn't always precious, right? Sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes it's tedious. Sometimes it's even painful. But what this reminds us of is what makes unity and community precious is the cost that was involved, Jesus' blood it is what makes this right here forever valuable. And I don't ever want to be caught devaluing what Jesus has attached his blood to. Jesus never attached his blood to the United States. Jesus never attached his blood to my political party. Jesus never attached his, his blood to my preferences, my worship style, my preaching preferences, my church styles. Jesus attached his blood to his people. Community. That's what brings value. Now, let's, secondly, true unity comes uh, down from above. And secondly, true unity covers the whole body. Covers the whole body. This is the image we have here of this anointing oil coming down Aaron. It's, it's, it's not like just like a little drop. It is gushing down him. Now, we have Old Testament and New Testament precedent for anointing with oil. And we as a church actually participate in anointing and oil when we pray for individuals at times. And we have an associate pastor way back in the day, in the early, early days of, of Reality Stockton, that when he would anoint individuals with anointing oil, he would take it and he would just cup his hand and pour it into the hand and then just smear it. In fact, I, I will never forget praying for an older individual who was, he was in a wheelchair. He was very sickly. We were praying for him. And this individual takes the oil and he just smears it on his forehead. It gets, starts getting in his eyes. He's rubbing his eyes. It's going down his shirt. 
I'm watching it, like, I know that it's going to stain his shirt. It's on his pants. Like, it's everywhere, all, all over his body. And I cannot tell you how annoyed I was by this. Especially as kind of a knee freak, I was like, this is, okay, that's not going to come out. Like, that's more than spray and wash right there. Like, you can call it the oil of gladness all you want, but he's not going to be very glad when he's trying to wash that later. And for me, as you, if you've ever been anointed with oil by me, like, it's more of a conservative little cross on the forehead, you know? And this week, as I'm, as I'm reading through this passage, it, it dawned on me, like, what reflects God's anointing more accurately? My, like, very conservative little swipe? Or the gushing down? The oil of Aaron was part of a ritual uh, of priests being anointed for service unto the Lord. And the anointing oil, most believe, represented the gift of the Holy Spirit. Um, coming down from heaven on a person and covering them, not just a little bit, but completely covering their entire body. And so when we take this idea here and we view it in light of the New Testament teachings, we get this a picture of the anointing of the Holy Spirit coming down from heaven and covering the entire body, the body of Christ, which is what? The church. God's people. And so the picture, the application for us is God pouring his, not conservative, his lavish, his, his extravagant anointing upon every member, upon every part of the body of Christ. And so when we begin to see other brothers and sisters uh, as God's anointed, his royal priests set apart for a particular services unto the Lord, I, I believe that our relationships will be forever changed. And this means that brothers and sisters in Christ are no longer problems to fix or certain personalities to avoid. They are priests to honor and priests to cherish as set apart for the Lord, no matter their views, no matter their personality no matter how much they may get on your nerves or may rub you the wrong way, this is a priest. This is someone that's individu uh, been, uh, this is an individual that's been anointed. And then lastly, we see this. True unity is sought by descending. True unity is sought by descending. Now, a little geography here. Mount Hermon sits at the northern portion of, of Judah. It's about 9,100 feet above sea level, and it's a place that is known for having abundant dew and precipitation. It's teeming with life and resources. And so here, that's where it begins, and then, we, then we're told about Mount Zion. Zion, despite it be call, being called a mount, is hardly a mount. It's just sort of a high place, and it's very deserty, and it's very dry. And so the picture is that of unity descending from the source of abundance to the place of need. And it's a reminder, this is how unity works. This is how unity is fostered. Now, I think of the life of Nelson Mandela, who was at one time the leader of the, the National Africa Congress. He was tried for treason. He was thrown in prison. And then through you know, a turn of events, he ended up becoming the president of South Africa. And at the end of his first term, he shocked everyone by announcing that he was not going to be running for re-election. He was at the very height of power and beloved by so many people at that time. 
And yet he intentionally handed down power in order to establish a peaceful transition of power, which I know is very hard to imagine today. But in order to set this example, he, he, he let it fall, so to speak, to the lower places, giving power to others in order to maintain the peace, in order to maintain the unity of the people. He set himself aside to raise someone else up for the sake of the people. So here's the deal. We don't create unity, but we are called to seek unity. We are called to foster unity. And the way that Christian unity is fostered and it flourishes is that when those who are in higher positions, whether that means economic higher positions or places of power, places of influence, when those places, those people in higher places then commit to send their abundance down to the lower places of need. Now, this is not condescending. Like, I, I'm coming in to rescue the day. I'm better than you because I have more than you. Having more uh, of something than someone does not make you better. It just means that you were born on second or third base. It is not condescension, but it is, however, compassion. Compassion. This is the way. I mean, if we desire unity, this is how it happens. Unity happens. Unity flourishes. Unity grows when we descend. When we descend in our finances. When we descend in our time. When we descend in our power. When we descend in our influence. When we descend in our care so that others can be lifted up. So that the abundance of Mount Hermon can flow down to God's people in Zion. And so when the apostle Paul is instructing the church in Corinth to descend specifically in their resources for the sake of unity, he uses this extremely powerful appeal. He says this in 2 Corinthians 8. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty might become rich. And so here's the question. Why would we empty ourselves so that others could be lifted up? Why would I descend so that someone else would go up? The answer is the gospel. This is what Jesus has done for us, amen? Jesus descended so that we could be raised up. Jesus emptied himself so that we could be filled. And if you have been filled with the abundance of Jesus Christ, you no longer ever have to fear ever being emptied again. If we've been filled in Jesus Christ, we can put away the scarcity mindset. We can put away the, the, the need to hoard. We can put away that what drives us to go to Costco and start buying out all the toilet paper again because I have my everything in Jesus. And because I'm filled with Jesus, I will never be empty again. And I have an abundant source. The abundance of Christ is flowing into me, which means I have an abundant source to give away. So let's conclude. <clears throat> Look at me at the last portion of verse three. Who knew so much could be said about three verses? For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. There the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. There. Where's there? Where's there? Where, where's the place that God has commanded his blessings to flow? If I'm reading it right, it's Zion. It's Zion. The place where God's, God dwells with his people. So, so the picture here is that God sends his blessings, listen to this. God sends his blessings 
in the direction of the gathered people. The, the community is where the life of God is found. The community is where we even experience a foretaste of heaven. That's what the psalmist is alluding to, life forevermore. This is where we get the taste of what we will have experienced forever with God's people. God's blessings aren't simply received when we reach out and extend our hands to receive. God's blessings are received when we reach out and we hold the hands of others because God's blessing is so vast and so great, it's too big to be isolated to the life of an individual. Only the community, only the gathered people is properly designed to hold and steward the vastness and the greatness of God's blessings. There, the Lord has bestowed it. Here, the Lord has bestowed it. The blessing is in belonging. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to call you to take next steps of belonging. For some of you, that means today Believing upon Jesus Christ, trusting in him, acknowledging that your sin has separated you from God, but through Christ, through his death and resurrection, we can be reconciled. Our sins are washed away. We receive his eternal life and we receive the family of God that comes to us by faith. Your next step today is trusting in Jesus, believing in Jesus, and joining the family of Jesus Christ. For others, this means leaving the fringe and stepping into becoming a member. I'm going to be honest with you. What the psalmist and the, the believing community is celebrating here, the, the, the goodness and the pleasant, the pleasantness is not experienced on the fringe of community. That's not where they're singing from. The blessings are in the belonging. Become a member. Step out of the fringe. If you're not a member, if you're not serving, if you're not participating, step in today. Step in today. And for others, this means reaching out and doing the courageous work of, of creating new friendships. Unfortunately, the church world does not exist like the online dating world. There are not, there, there's no app for that. It just requires the good old-fashioned, like, awkward putting yourself out there and saying, hi, I'm Christian. Nice to meet you. I'm glad you're here. And I think for a lot of us, we're waiting for someone to do that for us. We're... We hear this a lot. I'm, I'm waiting for someone to disciple me. Maybe flip the script. Find someone to disciple them. If you lack the friendships that you, you long for, create them. Create them. And I, and I know, this is a really weird time to be fostering meaningful relationships. And I believe two things about this time. Never has it been harder to, to foster meaningful quality relationships. I get that. And yet, at the same time, never has it been more important. Never has it been more important. Because if you want to go fast, by all means, go alone. But if you want to go far, if you want to persevere to the end, let's do this thing together. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for...